I said we're down to 10 here. I know I've still got, I think there's still 19 registered in the class. So we're over half. We have a quorum. We can start. Okay. Uh, we have a few things coming up today. The iTunes quiz is up and available through today. So if you haven't had a chance to take that yet, it's still available. You still have a chance to take that through the end of the day today. And then the only other thing coming up that's due this week is the exam replacement, which I gave you the paperwork on that. What was that, back early March, right before break time. So if you're going to do that, again, that was an optional assignment. If you choose not to do it, it doesn't affect you. If you're going to do it, it will take the place. I'll drop one of your exam grades and use that grade in, in, in place of it. And that's due the end of this week. Next week, I have two things due on Tuesday. I'm still looking at that. And part of that's my fault that I didn't give you this last week because I carried it around with me last week and meant to hand it out. And something came up or someone asked a question and I completely forgot to give you the homework. So I really don't want to give it to you today and say it's due Friday, which would be the other, other thing. But I'd rather have you look at it before the exam just so you'll have the information for it. So. It hopefully it'll help you for the exam too, but that's what I'm trying to get you to it, get you to you a little bit earlier. There you go, sir. So right now I have that due on Tuesday, as well as the exam, which I will give you on Thursday. I just have to send that out and get it printed, and then once I have that, I can give you that on Thursday, and you'll have that, which will be due as well on Tuesday of next week. Um, you've probably you may have heard about the other one already. Has he? Has Professor Delisi mentioned the lecture? Yeah. In lab? He did? Okay. He, Professor DeLisi is giving a lecture on the 25th on the Fermi paradox, which is essentially about life in the universe and has to do, the paradox is that according to the, the, some of the theories and Enrico Fermi, a uh, famous physicist, went through and said, you know, if there is life in the universe, why aren't we seeing it? You know, it should be, if you just take how long it would take for a civilization to, you know, grow and expand and expand out into space, that over a short time astronomically, remember, not short for us, but a short time astronomically, the galaxy should be flooded with that civilization. That civilization should have expanded throughout the galaxy in a very short period of time. Millions of years, yes, but very short astronomically. So, you know, if we're a rather young civilization and if something formed only a couple million years before us, why aren't we seeing them? Why aren't we detecting them? Why don't we see any evidence of them? Yeah? Isn't there other factors like uh, what was influence in our development? There could, there could be, but I mean, the idea is that if a civilization forms, you know, and we're looking at our nature, our nature is to expand outward, right? You know, we've expanded all over the Earth. Would we go out into space? You know, a thousand years from now, will we have colonized the solar system? Will we be to the nearest stars? And I mean, there are lots of other things. You know, what if what if the intelligent life developed as you know marine animals? You know, would they necessarily get space travel? Well, it's a good question, but it should be an interesting lecture. And I'm just putting it up there. I've been asked been asked to put it up in all the classes to encourage people to come. It's not required or anything, unless he's telling you you're required for lab. I'm not requiring you to go there or anything. But it will be. It should be a very interesting talk, and it sort of relates into our last chapter, which is the last unit of this that we'll get to probably the last day of class, on life in the universe. We'll actually talk about a lot of that the, the last day. And then, finally, the big one, Solar Observation Project is due a week from Friday. And this Thursday, we'll hopefully, hopefully get through a good chunk of chapter 15 today. 
finish that part of the day Thursday and then the rest of the day Thursday I'm going to go through the calculations and the graphing. We'll do all of that here in class. So I'll bring you some numbers. We'll go through. I'll do some example calculations. You can work on them yourselves here. I'll be here to go around and help make sure you've got, you've got the calculations right so that you can do that portion of the project. And then I'll have the graphs. You can actually graph the data I give you. And again, I'll be able right here to watch you, make sure you're doing it so you're not struggling with it on the night of the 26th. So you should have at least that portion done and you can then concentrate on the write-up portion of it. So questions on what's coming up? No, no, no. Okay. On to our picture of the day for today. Very pretty, colorful picture we've got. And it's actually the bright star to the left is the bright star Antares, which is one of the brighter stars in the sky. And a very large, in fact, an incredibly large star. If we were to take that star and put it in our solar system, it would actually fill, you know, it's bigger than the sun, so it would fill out, but it would actually not only go past Mercury, past Venus, past Earth, past Mars, and a good chunk of the way to Jupiter. So in terms of our solar system, this star would be, you know, three, I think it's like three and a half, between three and a half and four astronomical units wide. So you could set it at the center of the solar system where the sun is, and, you know, all of the inner planets would be gone. They'd be burned up in the star because their orbits would be within, that, within, the, within the star itself. And Jupiter itself would be about as far away from that star as we are away from the sun. So an incredibly large star and an incredibly cool star. It's actually a very cold red star. And in fact, the gas that's being illuminated around it was probably expelled by this star. So it has probably pushed some of this material out into space itself as it went through its evolution. And it's not actually a hot enough star to excite that gas itself. If you remember when we talked about the nebulae, it took, a very, it took all the ultraviolet radiation from the hot blue stars to actually excite, that, excite the nebula. So it turns out that there's actually a companion star with this, with this one that is a very hot blue star, which is providing the energy to cause this to, to glow. Some of the other things we see, there's again another, star, another relatively bright star off to the right hand side, uh, sort of illuminating, you can almost see the bluish glow around it. Uh, globular cluster, and we've mentioned those a little bit in the last chapter, a big cluster of um, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of stars out here in the same general direction. And you see all of this, you tend to be looking close to, we're relatively close to the center of our galaxy, actually, where we're looking in this. The center of our galaxy is in Sagittarius, which would be off over here somewhere. But it's relatively close to that in the sky. So you're seeing all these clouds of gas and dust and a few relatively clear spots where you can actually see well beyond because this globular cluster, again, we lose that three-dimensional aspect, is actually way, way off in the distance. Still part of our galaxy, but way off beyond most of the rest of this material that you're seeing there. And I should have said, with Antares, it's a big star, but it's not the biggest. It's not even the biggest. So there are actually stars that are bigger than that. There are a couple of stars that are so tremendous that you know, Jupiter would actually be engulfed in, their, in them if you put them in the solar system. So it's, it, it is a tremendous star, not to take anything away, but it's not even the biggest star. There's actually some that are almost the size of our entire solar system. Yes, sir? Mm -hmm. Is Antares big because it's like a red giant? It's a red supergiant, yeah. 
So it's actually gone through multiple phases. It's up in the very top, top of that HR diagram. And my other question, do you know what that bright, light blue, I guess it's a star on the right side is? On the star? I, um, I don't know off the top of my head. I know it's said here. Uh, it is Alniot. Sigma Scorpii is just the name of it. It's a relatively bright star, about a third magnitude star. And a binary star, a couple other things about it, but it's that would be the star, that's the star it is. I mean, it's not a famous, not one of the famous named ones or anything, but it's a relatively bright, relatively bright star. Anything else? No, 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 no. Okay. Let's go on to chapter 15. So last time we talked about our galaxy and I kind of rushed through our galaxy. Uh, you may have noticed I probably I cut out a few slides so I kind of cut things down a little bit to try to squeeze our galaxy into one lecture. I'm not going to be able to do that with, with the galaxies in general. It's going to take this one plus at least part of another lecture to get through all of the material that I want to on this. But this is what we're going to do now is look at all the different types of galaxies. And our galaxy is one of them, nice spiral galaxy. And again, we looked at some of what we knew about that the last time. Now we're going to look at all the different types of galaxies and sort of the whole zoo of galaxies that is out there. And there are a number of galaxies that are very similar to our own. And there are a number that are quite different. There are other kinds of galaxies that are quite different from what we see in our own galaxy. There's galaxy, our galaxy has a lot of gas and dust and stars forming. There are galaxies that are like that. There are galaxies that have more star formation. There are galaxies that have almost none. And we're going to divide the galaxies or in, divide into two general groups. We're going to first talk about what we call the normal galaxies, something like our own. And then there are galaxies that are unusually active, unusually bright, and we'll look at those as well. So what we're going to look, first of all, we're going to concentrate on the beginning of this class is Hubble's galaxy classification. How do we classify the types of galaxies? We went through uh, stellar classification, how we classified the stars, classes O, B, A, F, G, K, M. And we'll see how we do that for galaxies and how they're spread out in space. We'll come up to Hubble's law. Hubble's law is sort of the end of our distance ladder, last way of getting distances in the universe. Works nicely out to the edge of the universe. We can actually determine distances. But again, it depends on many of those other steps that we've used before. And then the last part, we'll look at the active, active galactic nuclei and the central engine, or as someone mentioned in their article review, the central beast at the center. The, the beast at the center of the galaxy that's actually causing, giving out all this energy. Well, what's actually powering it? So the central engine of the active galaxy, which is the black hole at the center, the massive black hole at the center. Okay, so spiral galaxies. So start with, start with what we know. We talk, our galaxy is a spiral, and they are classified by how big the bulge is. So how big is the central bulge of the galaxy? Have gal spiral galaxy with a very large central bulge, smaller, and very tiny actual central bulge. The arms, the bright blue arms, go almost all the way in to the galaxy. And they're classified as, let's do spiral galaxies here. 
are classified as SA, SB, or SC. So this has the largest bulge to the smallest bulge. So it just depends, really, we're just looking at how big that, that central bulge of the galaxy is. How much material is there concentrated in this bulge? The larger it is, a type A, type B is in between, and type C is the smallest. So we're just classifying it again, just visually, just looking at the galaxy and telling how big that central bulge is. You may also see some, and I won't give you anything, in the, but sometimes they're, they're not well defined areas. I mean, the bulge can vary from being this big. It's not like all the bulges are this big, then half are this big, and half are this big, you know, a third of each. They, they have a f full range. So you might find some that are classified as an SAB or an SBC, something that might be in between those. Sort of as we did with the stars when you had, you know, you had a OBAFGKM, but you also subdivide them into, you know, 0, 1, 2, and on to 9. So you did some subdivision there, and there's some subdividing here as well. That you know you classify them primarily as an SA or an SB, but some things that right at that edge between the two might get classified as an SAB in between them. So S stands for spiral, and A, B, or C. Nothing further beyond that. It doesn't go down to D or anything else. It's just those three letters, A, B, or C, depending on how how big of a central bulge we have. Type A is the largest. Type B is the little smaller, type C is the smallest. The other thing that we tend to find is that when you look at the spiral arms, is that the SAs tend to have the tightest spiral arms. And, these ha and the type B Cs have the most open spiral arms. So meaning when you look at the pictures that the, the SCs have the big, wide, grand spiral arms, they're just maybe a couple just sort of stretching out there. And when you look at the A's, they look much more tightly wound up together. Yes, sir? Is that attributed to the uh, size of the bulge? Does that affect the spiral arms at all? It's, it's a good question. I, I honestly don't know. It's a good, good question. Um, it might. When we'll find out when we're doing galaxies, there's a lot more we don't know about them. And when we did, we did star classification, we went through LBAFGKM, right? And we, I told, explained why it isn't ABCDEFG. You know, it was originally in a change because we got a scientific understanding. We're not to that point yet. There's not a scientific, it's, it's a visual classification like we did with the spectra. We, oh, this spectra, these spectra all look the same. These spectra all look, and we classified them. We're still doing that with galaxies. They're classified based on how they look. There's not a complete physical understanding that maybe there's something else there, and you may find later that there's some, well, maybe bees are this, or you know, there might be some other orientation to them. But what we find with the spiral galaxies is that they are all very similar to our own in that they have the same components. They're all flattened to a disk. They have a core, something at the center. You know, they're going to have a center. They're going to have a halo around it. They're going to have a central bulge. Again, the size of that bulge may vary. And they all have spiral arms. Right? Got to have spiral arms for a spiral galaxy. right? If you don't have spiral arms, you're not a spiral galaxy. Although we will find some galaxies 
that have all these other pieces pretty much except spiral arms. They're not classified as spiral galaxies, they're a different type. But they're very close to a spiral, they're flattened down to a disk. You know, they'll have a, co they'll have a core, they'll have a halo, they'll have a bulge, but they don't have spiral arms. It's a good question, why, why don't they have spiral arms? Good, good question, and let's see if we can find an answer, but I, I, don't, I don't know it. There's a lot of stuff, as we get through these next chapters, there's a lot we still do not know about the galaxies. You know, we're still learning about the Earth, we're still learning about the solar system. Well, they're closer. We're, it gets even harder the further we get out into the universe. But that's the first type of galaxy, and that's a, a regular, sort of called an ordinary spiral. So, there's another type of spiral galaxy. There's actually two types, and there's another one called a barred spiral. Looks a lot like a spiral galaxy. Looks like a typical spiral galaxy, except that it has a bar going through the center. So these are some other galaxies that you may look at. Spiral galaxies, you still see the distinct spiral arms. But instead of in the previous ones where we saw the, the spiral arms going right from the core, if I go back to that previous picture, you know, all the spiral arms went right down to the core, went right down to that central bulge. There's not really anything, you can see the difference between those when you look at those and you look at the barred spirals. There's a big bar going through the center. And the spiral arms come off the edge of the bar. So instead of these spiral arms coming right down into the core here, there's actually a bar going through the center here, bar going through the center here, and the spiral arms come off the edge of the bar. Now we classify those as S for spiral, capital B for barred, so barred spiral, and then the same as we do with the regular spirals, SBA, SBB, or SBC. And again, just depends on the size of the bulge. First one has a very large bulge, that's an SB, lowercase a. Slightly smaller bulge, SB, lowercase b, and the smallest would be an SB, lowercase c. And again, it's all classified visually just as we see the, how we see the galaxies, how they appear to us. So again, we don't really have a good physical understanding as to you know, whether there's something related to this. And if you recall when I talked about our galaxy, and we talked about density waves and the for keeping the spiral arms going. But what, caught, what forms the spiral arms in the first place? Still a wide open question. You know, I can't tell you, well, here's why the spiral arms form. It's not something I can tell you. It's something that is still, being, still constantly being researched and I can't even say there's a great theory that explains, you know, where, where, do, they come, where do they come from yet? Hopefully, hopefully, eventually, we'll have something. But bars are the same way. Why do some galaxies have a bar and some not? It's a very good question. Yeah? I'm wondering how they can ever tell how, you know, the arms are formed. It may never, you know, it's, it's a very difficult thing to actually come up with a theory. You can come up with a theory on it. You can't really No, we can't, we, don't, we can't watch a galaxy right. form. We cannot sit there and watch a galaxy form and see what happened there. It's can we look at all these different galaxies and sort of interpret how the galaxies work. That's, that's sort of the thing. Well, can you figure that out the way we do with stars? You know, we can't watch a star evolve. But we can look at millions of different stars at different stages of their evolution and sort of piece together 
here's what happens. Yes, sir? Um, are there like down still forming or like yep. coming together? Well, I know that they take like millions of years, but can you just like, can't, like it's time to start like watching it and just like keep track of it? Well, if you could watch one and keep track of it for many millions and tens of millions of years that it takes to form, you probably could learn something. But again, we're, we're, our answer isn't going to be today or tomorrow or next week or in our lifetime, but is going to be you know, millions of years down the road. It's, it's such a slow process. That's the problem with things in astronomy. And it's the way we try to do it is to look at not just one galaxy, but look at millions of galaxies and try to piece together all the different stages that we're seeing in terms of how they form. But yeah, I mean, technically you could do the same thing with a star, right? Pick a star. Okay, we're going to sit there and watch Antares for the next million years. What's going to happen to it? You know, it's a great project. Well, the problem is it's just too long for our lifetime. You know, if we could watch it over hundreds of years even, where you could have multiple lifetimes. But when you start talking about millions, it's, you know, you're going to sit there and watch it and nothing will ever change. And then the next person comes and watches and no, nothing, you know, the changes are just so gradual. That's the big problem with it in astronomy. Okay. So, next type of galaxy. So spiral galaxies are either ordinary or barred spiral galaxies. And the next type are elliptical galaxies. Now these are a completely different type. These were very similar to ours. And in fact, our galaxy is a barred spiral. And as I recall, it's something like our Milky Way is somewhere in the middle. We actually believe that our galaxy has a bar in it, so it's one of the barred spirals. But elliptical galaxies are completely different. They have no spiral arms. So differentiating them from a spiral very easily. And they also have no disk of material. If you remember, the spiral galaxies were all smashed down to a disk. The elliptical galaxies aren't. The elliptical galaxies are big blobs. And if you remember the globular clusters we looked at were big globs of stars. An elliptical galaxy is just like a great big globular cluster. And they're very interesting in that they can, they're the biggest range of size in terms of galaxies. You can have very small elliptical galaxies, not that much bigger than a globular cluster that might only have a million or so stars or less. And you can have other ones that are gigantic ellipticals, the biggest galaxies in the universe that are, contain trillions of stars. You know, many more than hundreds of millions of stars that are in our galaxy, but many times the size of our own galaxy. The other thing that they're missing is they're missing the cold gas and dust. So no gas and dust, which means no star formation. And you can't take two stars and form a star. There's not a lot of cold gas and dust, which we've looked at. We just looked at some pictures at the beginning of class today showing you know, where star regions of star formation, regions of gas and dust in space. Well, elliptical galaxies don't have that. So there is no evidence that stars are currently forming. Obviously, there's stars there. So stars did form at one point a long time ago. And there was gas and dust. But it's all been used up. It's gone. So there's no evidence right now that there is any uh, 
ongoing star formation that there are any young stars in them. So when we look at these galaxies, we don't see those blue stars, we don't see the hot young blue stars, they're all gone. Elliptical galaxy doesn't have any. And they may not have formed any stars, not just in astronomically recent, you know, not in the last few million years, 10 million years, 100 million years, but we're talking many billions of years. They probably have not formed a star in, you know, 10 billion years. So stars like the sun are in them are the biggest stars on the main sequence. Yes, sir. Say um, that there was an elliptical-like galaxy, mm-hmm. um, hypothetically, and it was making, like it was forming stars. Would it still be called an elliptical galaxy, or is it defined because it doesn't have any? Well, they're classified by the shape, but one of the big properties of them is that they don't have any gas and dust. Now, there are some peculiar galaxies, and there are things called peculiar galaxies, which would fit into that kind of class. So it's it's elliptical galaxy. It looks like an elliptical galaxy, but it's forming stars. What's you know? There's, so there there could be cases like that, and I think I may I have a picture coming up, but I may have shown the galaxy Centaurus A in this class. I don't remember. It's a big elliptical galaxy, but it's got this big band of dust going right through the middle. May have been the other class that's seen it. So I can't I can't remember. You guys blur together. Even though they're they're the planetary class, you guys blur together because some of the pictures come up the same. But. That's one that would be a peculiar galaxy. There's something different about it. So there are you know, class, galaxies that do not easily fit into one of these classifications. Most galaxies that we see fit into one of these groups I'm going to give you those. So there aren't, you're not going to find a lot of elliptical galaxies that are forming stars. And usually what happens is that it turns out that it's like an elliptical galaxy and a spiral galaxy colliding. And so the gas is coming from the spiral galaxy. But it would be more called a peculiar galaxy in that case. There's something odd about, odd about it. Okay. What they do have is hot gas, sort of a big halo around the galaxy. So a lot, a lot of hot gas well outside the boundaries of the galaxy is one thing that we do see around some of these galaxies. So here's some pictures of ellipticals and how we classify them. E for elliptical. You've got to watch out. This is making too much sense now, right? S for spiral, E for elliptical. You're actually going to be able to remember it, right? So. E for elliptical, and E0 is a spherical, almost a complete sphere galaxy. And E1 and so on down to E7. And these are the flattest. Those are the flattest of the, of the elliptical galaxies. So one would be a big sphere, think of it as a big ball, you know, completely round, spherical. And then they get flatter and flatter as you went down. So this one is E2 is slightly squashed. E3 is a little bit more squashed. E5 a little bit more. So you get down to something that's still nowhere near as flat as a spiral galaxy. It's not flattened down to a disk. So it's not, not a disk. It's still got some sort of size to it. So instead of becoming a very flat galaxy like a spiral galaxies are almost flat, it would still have some small bowls, but that would be more like an E7. And if I can draw, eh, not bad, spherical. You know, this would be almost completely round and would get squashed, progressively more squashed, until you got down to something like this. But there is no progression. There's nothing that gets flatter than that. The elliptical galaxies have some sort of um, width to them, whereas the spiral galaxies get very, very thin when they're, as they collapse down. So those are the elliptical galaxies. And next are what we call the lenticular galaxies. So 
Spiral and elliptical make up a big chunk of the galaxies and there's one more type that makes up the rest of them. Lenticulars are a little more rare. They're kind of a combination of what we had. And unfortunately, no, they're not L something. They're S zeros or S B zeros. So they're kind of related to the spiral galaxies, but these are the ones I mentioned before. They look like a spiral galaxy, but no spiral. But no spiral structure. So it doesn't have any spiral arms, no spiral arms in it. So looks a lot like a spiral galaxy, but it's more just a big blob, but it's very flattened to a disk. So it's kind of an in-between case of the spirals and the ellipticals. It, it behaves a lot like the ellipticals. It has no spiral arms. It has no star formation, no gas and dust. So it looks a lot like an elliptical in terms of those properties, but it's very much flattened like a flattened to a disk like a spiral galaxy. So it's sort of a cross between, cross between the two. No gas and dust, but it is flattened to a complete disk. So it's like those cases of an extremely flattened elliptical galaxy that it has. And they, they can be regular, typical one, or they can actually have a bar through them as well. Again, no spiral arms coming off the end of that bar as you would in a spiral galaxy if you had an S, B, A, B, or C, but an S, B, zero would just have the central bulge and the bar going through it. So sort of an in-between type galaxy and we call a lenticular galaxy. And then finally, irregular galaxies are irregular. Yeah, sorry. Um, you never I'm Lenticular would be similar in size, similar in size to the This does not. No. Lenticulars are classified either as one or, I mean, either with the, with the bar or without a bar. There isn't a size variation with the, with the bulge on it. It's just, there is no S, there's no S0A, SA sub-zero, however they do, they don't do anything like that. It's just simply the others. And irregulars are sort of everything else. A lot of them are very just blobby type galaxies with no coherent structure to them at all. I mean, it's a galaxy, there are stars there, there can be gas and things forming, a lot of gas and dust in these irregular galaxies. But no sign of any kind of structure. They don't have a great elliptical structure, they don't have any kind of spiral or disk dis structure. They're a very just an irregular blob of galaxies. Now some of them are more like that on the right. On the left, this one looks a little bit more interesting. You know, sort of a ring galaxy, condensed into a ring here, and may have had to do, in this case and with some of the irregular galaxies, had to do with galaxies colliding. So two galaxies colliding together, and if you look, you know, almost looks like a splash in the pond there, where you splashed a galaxy through another and the stars kind of got thrown out and are scattered around in almost a ring shape. So you could get something like that, and a lot of the irregular galaxies especially the bigger irregular galaxies, look like they're being distorted by the gravity of other galaxies. 
Now we didn't see that at all with stars. Right? Stars, we saw it a little bit. When we talked about the novae and the X-ray bursters, when you distorted a star by another star, you pulled material from one star to another. With galaxies, we'll find that it's much more common. Galaxies interact a lot more than the stars do. And I gave you the example last time, right, with the little ping pong balls in the room versus, you know, big beach balls. All those little ping pong balls, and that's not even close to being to scale, you know, probably need little tiny beads, you know, bouncing around in this room. And you put 10 or 20 of them in this room, they're never going to collide. Now, if you can make them bounce around all over here. But if I put 10 or 20 big beach balls in this room, they're going to bounce into each other all the time. Galaxies are more like that. They're big relative to how far, how far apart they are. So they're much more likely to collide and interact gravitationally. And that causes us and gives us some of these irregular galaxies that we see. Other ones are just little tiny galaxies. The two Magellanic clouds that orbit our own galaxy are actually irregular galaxies. They don't have any kind of coherent structure to them. So to summarize, this is a table from your textbook. 15.1, which just goes through looking at the spirals and the barred spirals, the ellipticals and the irregulars, and gives you the basic properties of the shapes. So what you're looking at, what are their shape and what are their properties like. The spirals are, are flattened disks, very flat disks, stars and gas. Elliptical galaxies, on the other hand, have no disk at all. And the stars are just smoothly distributed throughout the galaxy. So it's, again, it's a big blob of stars. Whereas a spiral galaxy is very distinctly flattened. Stars are concentrated at that disk. And not only are they concentrated at the disk, but they highlight the spiral arms where there is gas and dust and where stars are currently forming. When we look at what they're made up of, the elliptical galaxies contain only old stars. So no young stars at all. No sign of any young stars, only very old stars. Most of the elliptical galaxies, you could be talking things that are 8, 10, 12 billion years old. Those are the youngest stars. So stars like the sun would be a very young main sequence star, for, would be one of the younger main sequence stars left in some of these ellipticals. In some of them, the sun would be gone if it was in an elliptical. In a Bar spiral, we have a mixture, especially in the disk. The disk has a mixture of young and old stars. And the halo around it is much more like an elliptical galaxy. You have a big halo around it, which is only made up of old stars. Gas and dust and star formation are very much related. You have a lot of, star for you have a lot of dust, a lot of star formation going on within the disk of the galaxy. Very little not done in the elliptical galaxies. No significant star formation in the last 10 billion years. And in terms of motion, and we looked at this in terms of the Milky Way last time, gas and stars in the disk move in circular orbits. When you're in the disk, you're like a big giant solar system. All the stars are going around together. We're all walking in the same direction. When you're looking in the halo, they're random. So the orbits, some are going this way, some are going that way, this, you know, every which way in three dimensions. Just imagine those stars just going whichever way they happen to feel like. That in our halo is exactly the same way an elliptical galaxy behaves. They're completely random orbits. So again, some are going which way, they're going towards each other, they're going away from each other, as opposed to a spiral galaxy where everything's going around. You know, some are closer, some are further away, some are moving faster, some are moving slower, but they're all going in the same direction. And irregular galaxy, pretty much they have a lot of gas and dust, even more so than the 
uh, spirals. They'll have a mixture of young and old stars, just because they've been around for a while, but they'll have the younger stars from star formation, stars going on, and they have very irregular orbits still. Orbits are not confined to a disk the way they are in, this, in the spiral. So the spiral galaxies are sort of the more ordered uh, galaxies. Everything is going together in them. Now, how we classify the galaxies, and here's one way of doing it, is what we call Hubble's tuning fork diagram. So we have all the galaxies here. Here's the ellipticals on one string. And you have E0, which would be the big sphere, down to an E7, sort of a flattened one. And then you flatten it completely and you make the S0, the lenticular galaxies, just like an elliptical with no gas or dust, but completely flattened, like a spiral. And then we branch it off here to traditional spirals with more tightly or loosely and loosely wound spiral arms or barred spirals. Again, going from more tightly to looser bound spiral arms. It's a way to classify them and to think about them. Originally this was thought of as you know, maybe an evolutionary sequence that maybe galaxy started out as a big elliptical, gal- elliptical galaxy which slow, maybe we're seeing the progression of you know, the evolution of a galaxy, right? It's big elliptical, it slowly collapses, it flattens out, it forms spiral arms of one type or another, and it becomes a spiral galaxy. Now we now know that's not correct. And one of the ways, you know, when these were first classified, that made sense. When we were looking at these, you know, not even 100 years ago, you know, 70, 80 years ago, when we were doing a lot of galaxy classification, 70, 80, 100 years ago, doing a lot of galaxy classification, it made sense because we didn't know the details of it. But if you recall, one of the big points I made about these type of galaxies, as opposed to these, is that these ones didn't have any gas and dust. So if you think of this as an evolutionary sequence and you're going to go from an elliptical galaxy to a spiral galaxy, where'd the dust come from? Where'd you get all that gas? That wasn't here in the, it's not, not here in the elliptical galaxies. Doesn't exist. They're not forming any stars. So you collapse it down and all of a sudden you make all this gas and dust appear and you start forming lots and lots of stars. So that's one of the reasons you think of it, it really can't be an evolutionary sequence. You can't go from this to one of these but maybe they're just different types of galaxies that form earlier on and we'll look at that I think it's the next chapter we talk about the early history of galaxies and how they may have formed, might be two chapters from now and we talk about how they may have formed and that there may just be different ways of putting galaxies together when they formed in the early history depending on how they exactly formed they might have either formed an elliptical or formed a spiral depending on the exact interactions that occurred when those galaxies formed. So originally again thought of sort of an evolutionary diagram. Take this sphere of stars, you know, sphere of material, forms stars, slowly collapses, flat disk, becomes a spiral galaxy. Problem, where'd the gas come from? Where'd you get the gas? You know, you've got to put it in there someplace and you're not going to get enough by blowing up stars and nebulae, you know, they're going to put out some gas and dust in a supernova explosion, but not near enough to get the concentrations of gas and dust that we'd need in order to actually form stars, which is a big part of seeing a spiral galaxy. Okay, on to, dist- on to distances a little bit. That gives you kind of a basic overview of the different types of galaxies. Our last distance measurement we used was the Cepheid variables. 
And we could use that to measure distances to galaxies. And if you recall, Cepheid variables pulsate, so they get brighter and fainter. And that is correlated, has a relationship to how bright those stars really are. So it was real nice. They're nice, big, bright stars. So we can use them to measure distances of galaxies you know, 25 million parsecs away. That's getting way out there, isn't it? You know, 25 million parsecs? About 75 million light years? Well, the galaxy is a little over about 13 to 14 billion years old. So we're only getting still, still only a tiny fraction of the way out to the edge of the universe in terms of determining distances. If you're doing 75 million parsecs versus how many 13 billion parsecs, you know, that's nothing, right? 75 million out of 13 billion is a tiny percentage. You're only getting a little tiny way out into the universe. So we want to find other ways of measuring distances. And these are two more methods that we've come up with that can help us to determine in distances. Because we're way beyond the level of being able to determine a, you know, get a parallax for any of these or get any other determination of distance for these, for these galaxies. The Tully-Fisher relation is the first one. And it says that the galaxies that are rotating, depending on how the galaxy rotates, has a relationship to its luminosity. The nice thing with galaxy rotation is we can measure it. You know, it's hard to measure distances, but it's easy to measure rotation speeds because we can use the Doppler effect. And if you look at the galaxy, one side's coming towards you, one side's going away. You can't sit there and watch it rotate. It takes 200 million years for the sun to rotate around our galaxy once, so we're never going to watch the rotation. But the velocity is there. It's moving at some speed. And we can measure that using the Doppler effect. And then we can look, OK, the galaxy has a certain rotation speed. That tells us how bright it is. We can use that as far away as you can see the galaxy. As long as you can see that galaxy, then you're able to use this to get a luminosity at least an estimate of the luminosity, and determine a distance to the galaxy. So that's one method. I'm going to show you a little slide of that on the next one. The other one that works a little bit even further is the type 1 supernovae. Type 1 supernovae are very nice because they're all exactly the same. It's one object in astronomy where every single type 1 supernova is exactly the same thing happened. Now if you remember type 1, Type 1 was a white dwarf star that gained too much mass, became unstable, and tore itself apart. Type 2 was the massive star that blew up, when it produced iron in its core. But type 1 supernovae all happen exactly the same way. Right? It has to be a white dwarf star, has to be exactly the same mass. Because a white dwarf star will only undergo this explosion when it gets pushed just over that limit. So if it was 1.4 solar masses, and as soon as it gets pushed just over that exact limit, it blows up. It doesn't get up to 1.5 and 1.4. So it's not like some are 1.4 and some are 1.8. They can't get up to 1.8 because they blow up at 1.4 times the mass of the sun. So they're all exactly the same object that is blowing up. It's always a white dwarf star of an exactly the same mass. So they should all get exactly as bright at their peak. So we should be able to compare type 1 supernovae and one occurring closer, one occurring further away. We know how bright, if we know how bright one is, once we figure out how bright one is, we know how bright all of them are. It's like we mentioned the Cepheids, but remember the RR Lyrae stars. They were all the same magnitude pretty much. 
very, very close. Type 1 supernovae should be the same way. That as long as we see one in a galaxy, we know how bright it is really getting at its peak. If we can measure it at its peak, we know how bright it really got, and that's, that's it. We can determine the distance to that supernova. If you know the distance to the supernova, you know the distance to the galaxy. right? Supernova is part of the galaxy. And when you're talking about that kind of distance, it gives you the distance to the galaxy. So the key is that the type 1 supernovae are all the same. Now going back to the Tully Fisher, just to give you a little diagram kind of showing you what we actually see in it, is that you have this galaxy that's rotating and part of it is coming towards you, part of it's going away. When we look at that, if you look at the center, right, no shift. Center is not coming towards you or away from you. It's just staying there. The part that's coming towards you is blue shifted, so the line is shifted towards the shorter wavelengths. The part that's going away from you is red shifted, shifted towards longer wavelengths. What we end up seeing is sort of the combination of these three. You add the three lines together and you get a much bigger, thicker line. That help that tells us that part of it's moving away. You're seeing those three, those three little lines merge together. And not just those three because I'm looking at the extremes. You're looking at one edge of it and the other edge of it. Well, there's other parts that are moving at you know, faster speeds or slower speeds. So it's really a whole range of these little curves that you're adding together. But what we find is that the thicker this line gets, the thicker, say, the hydrogen line gets, the faster it's moving, the faster that galaxy is spinning. Because you have a larger velocity here and a larger velocity here, you get a bigger difference between them, and you'll actually spread that line out more. If it was not, if it was not spinning at all, then you could just ignore these two. It's not, not, not no parts coming towards us, no parts going away. All you're going to see is just that nice narrow line like you'd normally see. The faster the object is spinning, the more spread out that line is going to get. So that means we don't even have to be able to see different parts of the galaxy. Even if it's a very distant galaxy and we can just, just get the whole, measure the whole galaxy at once, we'll get that entire spread. And the wider that is, that's what the Tully-Fisher relationship is, is looking at how wide the lines get, how fast that, that galaxy is rotating, and gives us an idea of the, of the luminosity. So it's another way to determine distances. And we need all these different methods just because there are so many different things and it gets so hard as you get further and further out into space to be able to determine these. So to bring that back to the distance ladder here, we're almost done with the distance ladder. We've got one more to put on the top there after. But we've looked at these before. We've gone through you know, radar ranging in the solar system. Stellar parallax is the direct method. Uh, spectroscopic parallax using the HR diagram. Uh, last time we added variable stars, Cepheids and RR Lyrae stars, getting out to 25 megaparsecs. Now we're getting further. Tully Fisher will work out to 200 million parsecs. And st the standard candles as the type 1 supernovae will work out to about a billion parsecs. We're still not to the edge of the universe. Billion parsecs would be about three billion, a little over three billion light years. So three billion out of 13 billion, you're about a quarter of the way there. So you're still only measuring the quarter of the universe around us. There's a lot of universe out there that we cannot measure distances of with any of these methods. You know, these only work, you know, this only works pretty much within our galaxy. Here to some of the nearest galaxies, more distant galaxies. Even more distant galaxies, it's great, but we need something that works further out. 
Again, we're only looking at that you know, quarter of the universe. It's, you know, it sounds like a lot when you're talking about getting out to a billion parsecs away when most of the numbers I've been talking to you were in terms of light years and tens of light years and hundreds of light years. You know, 200 parsecs for the stars, 600 light years. It sounds like we're getting so far out there, but we're still very tiny compared to the entire universe. Our next step helps us in terms of getting further and further out. Gets us further out to the edge, essentially to the edge of the universe. But the problem again is that each of these methods, again, depends on the ones before it. So in order to determine you know, how bright some of those type 1 supernovae are, you have to have measured distances to some of those stars in that galaxy perhaps, looking for a variable star in a closer galaxy or looking for a spectrum. You have to have some other method to have gotten an initial distance to actually sort of calibrate the system. So that's our biggest problem is that if there's mistakes down here and something's off, that carries through in our methods up towards the top and gives us bigger areas, errors, errors in determining the distance. And we'll come back and look at this one more time in a little bit. Okay, so galaxies in space. When we look around us here, here we are right here, there's our Milky Way and a bunch of little galaxies. So Milky Way is the primary galaxy in our system and there's a bunch of little galaxies around it. You have the two Magellanic clouds uh, which are visible in the southern hemisphere. A couple other dwarf galaxies, small galaxies that are sort of satellites that orbit around our galaxy. Nearby to us are a couple of other galaxies, uh, M31 Andromeda Galaxy, M33 another large spiral galaxy, so there's actually a pairing with a couple of spiral galaxies here, and a few other again small dwarf galaxies. We live in a very small group of galaxies by comparison to what we're going to look at later on. Just a relatively small number, a few dozen galaxies in our, in our what we call our local group of galaxies. So Andromeda is part of that, M33, and all of these little galaxies are sort of part of our own little group of galaxies. No giant elliptical galaxies, some of these are small elliptical galaxies, some of them are irregular galaxies, but, and some are spirals, we had a couple spiral, three, three main spiral galaxies, but no large elliptical galaxies which we'll see coming up later, later on. So three spirals are the Milky Way, the Andromeda Galaxy, and, which is also called M31, and M33, another spiral galaxy. Those are the three primary parts of our just tiny, tiny, tiny area of the universe. And together it's about 45 galaxies. So you know, less than four dozen galaxies that make up our little group. Three big galaxies and a bunch of, a bunch of little ones. This is what we call a galaxy cluster. So we found, when we looked at stars, you saw individual stars, you saw the stars grouped into clusters. You had open clusters and globular clusters that we've looked at. Well, galaxies do the same thing. They group into clusters, galaxy clusters. So actual groups of galaxies that, we, that will form together and are bound together by their own gravity. So we can look at something like this when you come back and if you could look at the the local group, as we call it, our local group of galaxies, and you can come back in a billion years and look at it. The individual characteristics might have changed. You know, stars will have come and gone within each galaxy, but the whole group would not have changed, for the most part. There is, there is some cannibalism involved, that galaxies can eat other galaxies. 
So some of these galaxies eat quotes, of course, but they can actually swallow up other galaxies so that the big galaxies tend to engulf these smaller ones over time and sort of incorporate them into themselves. But we're going to look at this, and this is a relatively small galaxy cluster. So we're going to look at much bigger clusters that, are, that you know, make this seem tiny. We're talking about here, again, just 40 or 50 galaxies, very small number. There are clusters that have you know, many thousands and tens of thousands of galaxies in them. So you know, we thought we were small before as we got, to the, as we got from you know, just the Earth to looking at planets to stars. Well, we're getting smaller and smaller as you jump further out into the universe because now you're not just talking about you know, our galaxy. Oh, we're in this little tiny port of our galaxy, but now that's just one of many billions of galaxies. So here's looking at the Virgo cluster. And M87 here is the large elliptical, tremendous elliptical galaxy, is a much larger cluster, about 3,500 galaxies. You know, 45 galaxies, 3,500, a big difference in terms of size, in terms of how many galaxies there are there. So you've got you know, little tiny cluster R's. This is a gigantic cluster. And most of what you're seeing in this image there's a few stars scattered among there, but most of the objects that you're seeing in here are other galaxies. And you can see we've blown up one section here, and that all these little spots, okay, there's a star, but there's a galaxy, a galaxy, a galaxy, a galaxy, a galaxy. All those are different, another galaxy, or other galaxies. Some are elliptical, some are very flattened. You can see that are probably spiral galaxies. All different types. Some of the little tiny ones will be irregulars or dwarf ellipticals, tiny elliptical galaxies. But there's 3,500 galaxies there. And the Virgo cluster is only part of another cluster. It's only a small part of another cluster. So there are many times the number of galaxies in that as you expand outward and look at the entire universe. Now what are these galaxies doing? Well, they don't like us. They hate us for whatever reason. Because when we look at these galaxies, Here's a bunch of different galaxies. There's that one in Virgo. Um, there's one in Ursa Major, a couple others you know, scattered across. And if you look at them, well, you can measure the shift of some of the lines in the galaxies. You can take a spectrum of the galaxy and measure the redshift. And what we find is that with one or two exceptions, every galaxy is moving away from us. So you know, we didn't take a shower this morning or something, you know, and they're all just getting out of here. But they are going zip, they're zipping away from us. And some are moving away slowly, relatively close galaxies like the Virgo. They're moving away at 1,200 kilometers per second. No, just very slowly, relatively. Whereas some of these more distant galaxies, this one here over in Hydra, is over 60,000 kilometers per second. Again, that's not per hour, that's per second. So if you want to put it in per hour, or you've got to multiply that by 3,600 more. So these things are moving away extremely quickly. And the only ones that do, don't seem to be moving away from us are some of the very closest ones you know, within our own group. And likely what that is, like with something like Andromeda, is that there's just enough random motion that some of them, they're orbiting, we're, we're orbiting with Andromeda, sort of around a common center, sort of like a binary star system. It's a, you know, multiple galaxy systems, so sometimes the galaxies are moving closer to each other. At other points, they'd be moving further away. But when we look at all these more distant galaxies, every single one is moving away from us. And the further away they are, the faster they're moving away from us. So 
The help we've got here is that we've just learned something else about the distances. As we learn the distances, this relationship is going to help us in terms of determining, measuring that distance. Because we can measure the redshift. Now, we can measure this shift. All we have to do is find some lines that we can identify, know where they should be, find out where we find them. All of a sudden, I can measure the velocity, how fast it's moving away from us. It turns out there is a relationship between that and the distance. Nearby galaxies moving away much more slowly than more distant galaxies. And if we look at that, if we look for the uh, some of the near, some of the galaxies here, if we look at just a few galaxies here from those five galaxies that were on the previous sheet, the closer galaxy, as determined by the by one versus the furthest galaxy, not perfect, but looks pretty much like about a straight line, right? So. The faster it's moving away, if I can determine now a speed, I can determine a distance. Determine a speed, determine a distance. Determine a speed for a galaxy, I've got the distance because I can find what the relationship, what this line is. And if we add more galaxies to it and look at even more galaxies, it still fits pretty good. Again, it's not going to be perfect. There's me- errors, in measure- errors in making measurements. So you could measure something a little bit off. All the galaxies might not fit this precisely. But it works very good. It's a very good method to determine distances. And it works as long as you can measure that. As long as you can get a spectrum of that galaxy, as long as it's bright enough to get a spectrum and you can measure its shift, as long as this relationship stays the same, you know, all the way out to the edge of the universe, another good question, does it stay the same or does do things change when you get out 13 billion uh, light years away? Does something change? Which is a good, good possi- which could be a possibility. But it, wor- but it looks like it works. It looks like there is a good way now, just like we used the HR diagram, right? We used the HR diagram, we measured the spectral class, and we said we got the luminosity from it. Well, here we've got another very easy thing to measure, the velocity, because we can use the Doppler shift. Measure that. Okay, it has it's receding at 50,000 kilometers per second. It must be 700,000, or 700 parts million parsecs away. So another way to get distances. And again, the nice thing is that this works out to the edge of the universe. As long as we can get a spectrum, as long as we can see the galaxy and get a spectrum of it, we can then determine this. So what we get is that that slope, that line, the, the, the thing we're looking for is the slope of that line, which is what we call Hubble's constant, which is h with a little subscript of 0. So essentially, if we can determine what that is, we can measure the velocity. If we know this number, well, the distance is easy, right? Take your velocity, divide it by Hubble's constant, you got your distance. You can immediately determine what the distance is to that galaxy to that object, whatever it is out there. Problem with it is, is that I showed you that it doesn't fit a perfect line, it's not exactly perfect, looks pretty good, but depending on the measurements and how they're being made, we get values ranging from about 50 to 80 uh, units, interesting units here, kilometers per second per megaparsec, just says that for each megaparsec something is away, it's receding at so many kilometers per second. So it's still relatively uncertain. Current values range between about 50 and 80. It's a big difference, right? You know, is it 50 or is it 80? That makes a big difference in terms of calculating the distances. Because if you take your velocity and you divide it by 50, 
you get one number, if you divide it by 80, you're not going to get something close. It's not like it's 50 or 51 or 52. Or, well, it's pretty close. It's still quite uncertain. But it's getting better. Um, let's see, probably about 20, 25 years ago, this, and that's just 20 or 25 years ago, this ranged not between 50 and 80, but between 50 and about 150. Big, big difference, right? You know, that's going to make a factor of three in your distance determinations. Three times closer or three times further away, depending. So a more accurate observations have helped in narrowing it down. And if we could come back in another 25 or 30, maybe we can start to narrow it down. You know, maybe you'll find out that it's somewhere in the middle there. Maybe you'll find out that it is 50 or that it is 80 or it's something you know, in between. But we've gotten, we're narrowing it down. So it's not just that you're stuck, but you need more and more accurate observations. But it was not that long ago that there was a significant debate as to whether it was 50 or 100 or 150. Now we've narrowed it down. We've gotten more observations, better observations between Hubble Space Telescope and all the other new telescopes that we've put up to actually narrow down the numbers more. So while it still looks like there's a big error there, it's a lot better than, it's a lot better than it was not all that long ago. And the nice thing with using Hubble's law in terms of distances, every other method I mentioned, uh, parallax, it got harder and harder to do as things got further away. Right? It was harder to measure that angular shift if something was further away. The shift got smaller and smaller. Hubble's law works better when you get further away. Because if you think about it, when all those galaxies are moving, when you have like a cluster of galaxies, they're all, each galaxy, there's an expansion. All the galaxies are moving away. But the galaxies also have their own random motions. So if there's a cluster of galaxies, you know, some of them are coming towards us, some are coming away. The whole cluster may be moving away. But within that galaxy, as they orbit, some might be coming towards us. And those random motions, you know, how fast it's coming towards or away from us within its cluster, gets overwhelmed when you get very far out in the universe. So when you get very far out, those little random motions are essentially you know, tiny percentages of what it's moving. Whereas in our own cluster, you know, we're bound together. There's, some of those galaxies actually look like they're coming towards us or at least have a component of their velocity moving towards us, such as the Andromeda galaxy. So the key thing about Hubble's is that it works better. The further away you get, the better. So it can work out as long as you can get that spectrum. That's the only key. You've got to be able to measure the spectrum. If you can get that, then you can measure the distances. So there's the top of our distance ladder. And it works. Hubble's law works beyond about a million parsecs. So it kind of overlaps with the supernovae. But it works out beyond that. As long as you can get a spectrum, and as long as you are confident you know the number. What, what, is that, what is the slope of that line? That's the important thing you have to know to be able to do it. Is it 50, 60, 70, 80? No, that's the range right now as to where we think it might be. But in terms of determining that, you know, how well do you know it makes a difference in terms of how accurate your distances are going to be. So that's the end, that's, that's the steps of our distance ladder there, trying to determine all of these. And Hubble's law is the last step that works out as far as we can go, as far as we can look in the universe. So we can do that for the most distant galaxies that we can see, most distant objects that we can see, we can use that to determine the distances. But again, with a lot of these others, it depends. You know, step by step, you have to, you know, you have to be able to figure out a number of stars using this to do this one. And then you have to use those to calibrate these to figure out exactly how these work. And they all build on each other. So it gets harder and harder as you get further and further out in the, ga in the, in the universe. OK. 
So on to active galaxies. And active galaxies, I don't like to call, call them different from I mentioned peculiar galaxies before. I try to call active galaxies different because active galaxies are actually not rare. If you look at that, that's like 20, so one out of five, one out of four, one out of five galaxies would be considered an active galaxy. And they're much too bright. They're much brighter than they should be, so they don't look like a normal, they look like a normal galaxy in some cases, but they're a lot brighter than they should be. The difference is, is the spectrum that they emit too. If you look at the spectrum, if you could just look at the normal galaxy at all wavelengths, you'd find that it emits a little bit of radio, some infrared, peaks up here in the visible, and then drops down real quickly when you get towards the higher energies. Now, if you recall way, way back towards the beginning of the class, probably back in February sometime, we looked at the black body spectrum of a star. Does that curve look vaguely familiar? Because that's all it is. When you look at a normal galaxy, all you're doing is adding up the light, the combined light of the billions of stars that make it up. So it looks like a great big star. The spectrum looks like that of a great big star for a normal galaxy. When you look at the spectrum of an active galaxy, it looks completely different. Okay? It doesn't have that you know, um, star-like shape for a spectrum. It's pretty much level. You get a lot of radio emission. You get a lot of visible emission. You get x-rays and gamma rays and everything else. It's pretty much uniform across a wide range of wavelengths. So it gets a lot of energy. It gets a lot more radio energy than a typical galaxy and a lot more x-rays and gamma rays. It's overall brighter, not just visibly, not just in visible light, although it is as well, but it's really brighter in x-rays, really brighter in radio waves. If you look at the difference between the two, you know, it's, yeah, it's a little bit brighter in optical light, but my goodness. You know, it's a big, tremendous difference over there in x-rays and a pretty darn big difference over in radio waves. So quite different than a typical galaxy. So it's not just that they're brighter, that's one important thing, they're brighter than that, but they also emit a different type of radiation. And we call this as stellar radiation or we call it thermal radiation, just radiation due to heat. That's what a star emits. Star is hot at a certain temperature, so it emits radiation based on that temperature. And we call that thermal radiation. When you look at a galaxy, again, you add up all those stars. Put that all together, and you have you know, a great big galaxy, great big, great big star, great spectrum of a great big star that just has the same type of spectrum, same shape as all those other stars that made it up. Active galaxies are quite different. They emit what we call not stellar radiation, but non-stellar. So it's radiation that does not come from stars. And it likely occurs deep down in the core of that galaxy. There's a black hole there, right? We're going to come to that in a, in a little bit here. I'll talk about black holes. But there's a black hole at the center that's producing a lot of this energy. And again, we talked about black holes, so when I say the black hole is producing the energy, realize and remember that it's not the black hole itself, because once anything gets into that black hole, it's gone. But as material gets close to that black hole and spirals in and is close, but outside the event horizon, it can heat up to tremendous temperatures and emit a lot of energy. That's what I mean when I say the black hole is producing the energy. It's that material around the energy. Now, one type of galaxies, there's a couple different types. What I'm sort of talking about there are the ones we're going to discuss first, which are something's going on 
in and around the center of that galaxy. Something intense is happening down there. There's another one that is called a starburst galaxy, which are, star, which are galaxies that are undergoing a burst of star formation. So we looked at spiral galaxies and you know, they're forming stars. But you could look at a bunch of spiral galaxies and say, well, they're typically forming you know, so many stars, so many stars. But then you'd find some that seem like they're forming a lot more stars. You know, these ones are incredibly bright, forming a lot more, having a lot more star formation going on, which is probably due to those collisions. If you take those two galaxies and you collide them together, well, the stars pass through each other, but the dust clouds hit. And you start them compacting. Once you start them compacting, gravity takes over and you form a, you form a new star. So as those, ga- as those galaxies collide or interact gravitationally, that enhances the star formation that's going on and gives them what we would call a burst of star formation. So a starburst galaxy. Nothing to do with the candy. You know. but, so it's a burst of star formation going on. And that is what is, that's what's occurring in these types. Now we'll, we can look at those a little bit later, but what we're going to look at first are the ones that have something going on deep in the core. Whoops. Come on. There we go. Three types of active galaxies. So we're going to look at these three. Seifert galaxies, radio galaxies, and quasars. Seifert galaxies look like a normal spiral galaxy. So you can sort of see some of the spiral structure here. If you can see a little bit of the spiral, you know, some spiral structure going around, so it has some spiral structure to it. But and you can't tell just by looking at the image, but if you were to compare a bunch of these, a bunch of galaxies, you'd find some, the Seifert galaxies, have unusually bright cores. So the core is much brighter than it would be in the other, you know, 90-some percent of the spiral galaxies that you looked at. The core would not just be bigger. So we looked at the different, we looked at the classification, we looked at size difference. That didn't have anything to do with the luminosity. That was just how big was the central bulge. Here it has to do with the actual brightness of it. How bright is that core? And in a Seifert galaxy, it's not just a little bit brighter, twice as bright, three times as bright. No, talking thousands of times brighter. So something is going on deep in this core that is causing it to glow brighter than it otherwise would. So something is going on deep inside, deep inside that. But otherwise, it really looks a lot like a spiral galaxy. If you ignore the core of it, you can trace out spiral arms there. You can find star formation going on in the spiral arms. It looks a lot like a spiral galaxy, except for the fact that it is so much, bri- so much brighter. Now, we looked at this, and I mentioned this a little earlier, but the Seifert ga- galaxies also vary very rapidly in brightness. So over, you know, that's only over a period of 25 years. So that if you have an object and it's, if you look at how bright it is, it gets brighter and it gets fainter and it gets fainter and then it gets really bright and then it gets fainter. And it varies in brightness on a very short time frame. You can actually go from being very faint to bright to faint to bright to faint to bright in the matter of just a couple years. Now what does that mean? That tells us that whatever is producing the energy has to be tiny. Because you can't vary. If this thing were tens or hundreds of light years across and you've got this here and you've got something ten light years away in front of it, if it's all pulsing together and getting brighter, something's going on and making it brighter, well you find out about this today, 
you're not going to find out that this part got brighter until 10 years from now. So that would mean it would take at least 10 years for it to get fully bright and then to get faint and then to get bright again. It would take many, many years depending on how small it is. So the smaller you look at these, the smaller you find that these occur, the closer you can get these you know, coherent up and down and up and down. You're not just one bright, you know, not just increasing in brightness, that can work. But when you're getting brighter and then fainter and then brighter and then fainter, over very short times, it says that you're talking about something that might only be a few light years across or maybe smaller. There are some of these that vary not just in years, but you can get down to things like months or weeks or days. So if they're, if they're only a light day across, that's about the size of the solar system. Still big, right? The solar system's tremendously big, right? I made a point of that, but compared to our solar system and you put the whole universe out there, it's nothing. You know, we're, we're teeny tiny nothing. So it's telling us when we see these things varying extremely quickly, it tells us that it's very something very tiny. It's not a whole galaxy or even something you know, many light years across. You know, it's about 50 or 60 light years across. It can't be if they're varying this fast. Now I'm going to start on radio galaxies and then we'll finish this up. I'll get to some of this on Thursday before we go into the solar observations. Radio galaxies, as their name might suggest, are emit very strongly in the radio portion of the spectrum. Here's the one I mentioned. I don't remember if I showed you guys that one before or not. This is Centaurus A. And you mentioned, you know, what about a galaxy? What about an elliptical galaxy that has star formation? Well, there's an elliptical galaxy, but it's got a big dust lane going across it. So that would be a more peculiar galaxy. In this case, it's also an active galaxy, and we think that's two galaxies actually colliding together. But when we look at it in the radio, this is an optical image. Here's the same optical image, but we've overlaid to scale the radio image of it quite different. Okay? Most of the optical galaxy does not emit any radio waves. But the radio waves are in a giant lobe up here, a lobe down here, and all seems to be coming from you know, jets from something in the central portion of that galaxy. So there seems to be something going on there. When we look in very close into the center and we zoom in just to this little portion down here, look at this jet a little bit better. And in fact, in x-rays, it's emitting a lot of energy when you look at that in the x-ray part of the spectrum. So there's something very energetic down there at the core of this galaxy that could be a large black hole that, you know, maybe the beast is getting fed here. You have two galaxies colliding. You know, if you have a, ga if you have a black hole sitting there, it's not going to do anything, right? If there's nothing around it, if it's already swallowed up everything that's close enough to it, it's going to sit there and you're not going to know the difference. But if you start colliding galaxies and you start changing the dynamics of what's going on at the center, you might start feeding that beast again and it starts getting very energetic and starts spewing out material, in this case sort of perpendicular to that disk that's around it, and throwing material out. Again, not from the black hole itself, but from around the black hole. So we'll come back and I think we're about set. So we'll come back and pick this up and on Thursday I'll see which I can finish of 15 on Thursday and then we'll spend the last part of the class working on the, working on the observations project. So have a good afternoon.